And while the children go downstairs, let me say good morning, and it's always good to be here at Central Presbyterian Church. I haven't been here for kind of close to two years. Some of you probably have no idea who I am. I'll just say that I uh, preached here for the first time 28 years ago. Uh, since that time, my children grew up, got married, and had their own children, and they got colds and they stuck their fingers in my face. And if it sounds like I'm not quite my usual self, it is true that I have a cold, and just so you know, I feel even worse than I sound. <laughs> and it's good to be here today, reading God's Word to you and explaining it. So, um, Clay Smith, my dear friend, did invite me to speak in the series called Life by Design, and the theme of this passage is our calling, and specifically the big idea that God leads us to places in life, which include our work, but other things as well, leads us to places in life that he assigned to us, and we should remain in the position we were in when God called us and serve there. That's the idea. I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 to 24. If you're the kind of person that has a Bible, you like to keep the Bible open, I will be looking at other parts of 1 Corinthians 7 also. You might have your Bible ready to look at that. And as I go, I'll explain one or two things in the passage. That is to say, I'll explain them immediately, real quick, and then I'll explain them more later. Listen to God's Word. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. What counts is keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. That's the second time Paul has said that. Then he says this, maybe the most striking social teaching in the entire New Testament, were you a bondservant that would ordinarily or commonly be translated slave? The translators do a good job using a somewhat different word, bondservant, because slavery in the ancient world was not exactly like slavery, actually pretty different from slavery in America. Specifically, most slaves were able to gain their freedom, purchase their freedom by earning money and keeping their money at some point, maybe by the age of 40. So bond servant's a pretty good translation. Nonetheless, we might think bond servant or slave. Verse 21, were you a bond servant or slave when called, don't be concerned about it. Could be translated, don't let it bother you. It's amazing. But if you gain your freedom, if you can gain your freedom, ESV says, avail yourself of the opportunity. Another translation would be, if you can gain your freedom, do so. Gain your freedom if you can. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become the bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called there, let him remain with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you're saying to us in this social teaching from your word, this speech to our life situations. May we trust you, Lord, to guide us, and may we serve faithfully where you put us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You will recall that in the year 2011, on the day 
known in infamy as 9-11, two planes crashed into the World Trade Center and about 50,000 people worked in those buildings and as thousands of people were streaming down the stairs, there were hundreds of people going up the stairs in the opposite direction. They were the firefighters and rescue workers of New York City and, and when everything was done and several hundred of the firefighters and rescue workers had perished, our nation lauded those men who gave or were willing to give their life to rescue others. And almost to a man, when interviewed, they said, we're not heroes, we were just doing our job. We were just fulfilling the task that was given to us and which we took on ourselves. Now that's not only the way people talk when they do something heroic like, like rescue people in a collapsing building. If you look at people in hard places of life, you notice that other people say similar things. For example, if you've ever been with a mother or father of twins or even triplets, you will notice that everybody calls them heroes, you're so marvelous and so wonderful, and if you ask them, they'll say, just doing my job. God gave me two children, or maybe three, and so I'm taking care of the children that God has given me. This is God's gift, God's calling, God's assignment to me, and I embrace it. Now when people talk that way, even secular people, they're laying hold of the idea that we have a place or an assignment in life. Now of course the Bible is the source of that idea. But if we think about work, we have to also admit that the church hasn't always been faithful to that teaching. In fact, for many hundreds of years, the church said the only people who really have a calling from God are priests and monks and nuns and bishops and people like that. Along came the reformers around 1500 AD, and they said, no, 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 uh, everyone who serves God faithfully in a good or honest vocation is called by God to that vocation. Martin Luther specifically said, a farmer shoveling his manure or planting his seeds is serving God as surely as the monk or the nun or the priest at their prayers. And the milkmaid milking her cow and the magistrate doing justice, administering justice and caring for the city, these are serving God as surely as anyone. Now about 80 years ago, a man named Abraham Maslow showed up and said, uh, you know, so far so good, but let's add something. Once we have food and clothing and shelter and love and security, what people really seek is fulfillment and meaning and self-actualization. And that's what people are going to seek. And that idea has been in the air for a long time. If you are truly in the right place, it's gonna feel good and you're gonna feel actualized while you are there. And so you should move around until you find that place that makes you feel awesome and, and fulfilled. Meanwhile, the church is still laboring with some medieval doctrines about work and calling. I don't know if you know this, but in the church, there are lots of people who still kind of think like Catholics that priests, well, pastors maybe, ordained ministers are kind of little better than anybody else. Now they might admit that, you know, doctors and nurses are pretty noble and, and elementary school teachers need to get all the props that they can. And they might even adjust it a little bit and say, well, you know, doctors get paid a lot, so maybe nurses are better, better than doctors because they do the same work, but they're underpaid for it. Can I tell you that 
you know, you've got pastors here like Clay Smith, my dear friend, and Mike. And You know, I'm a professor now. I'm an ordained minister, but I'm a professor, and that means that my job is easier than theirs because I work in the realm of theory. I don't have to actually get my hands dirty with people, so, you know, Clay and Mike and others are superior to me. But of course, they know that missionaries are superior to them because missionaries do the same thing except not in their native language. So that's obviously better, right? And then if you're a missionary in Europe, you know perfectly well that you've got most of the comforts of Western culture, and so you're inferior to a missionary who's in Africa. Everybody knows that. And African missionaries who are in the big cities at least have electricity on a regular basis, and in the rest of the place, you know, it's brownouts all the time. So if you're out in the countryside, that's better. And if you're a a frontier evangelist, that's even better until finally at the apex of all of Christendom is the person who lives in a snake-infested tree hut translating the Bible into a language known by 841 people <laughs> as rain pours down upon them. Now when you, when you say it that way, that's called a reductio ad absurdum, we realize it's silly to pr- play these games with priorities, but we do it. And not only do Christians do it, but secular people do too. A number of years ago, there was a man running for president. I won't name him, I won't say he was, except he invented the internet. (laughs) And he made the release of his, you know, finances, and they noticed that he made a great deal of money the year before he ran for president, and he'd given $600 away. And they said, Um, If you're looking for the common good, why did you give so little to other causes? And he said, I have given my life to public service. Now that really struck me because there's a sense, of course, in which we hope a politician does give their life to public service, but if he says, I don't have to give money away because I give my life away, then I think, well, what are you saying about other people? like garbage collectors and truck drivers and engineers and elementary school teachers, because I have to tell you, I think the garbage collectors give their life to public service too, as do truck drivers. Let's just play a little game here. If all politicians, truck drivers, and garbage collectors disappeared from the face of society on the same day, who would we miss first? (laughs) It's an easy question. Now that's not meant to denigrate politicians. Politicians have jobs that have impact over months and years, and we need people to look to the long term. We want politicians to do their jobs so well that they aren't missed right away. Nonetheless, if politicians are giving their life to public service, so are garbage collectors, and so are truck drivers. And so we need to get rid of these sorts of approaches to calling and life assignment, trying to declare one person superior to another, and instead realize that we're all accountable before God to answer the question, what did you do in your life assignment? What did you do with the gifts God gave you? Now there's a question, or two or five actually, in the discussion questions you can get out there, but I'm gonna say five things I think God may ask us at the end of our life. And I'll see them slowly so you can think about them. Number one, God gives everybody gifts and abilities. God gives everybody talents. I define a talent as the ability to acquire a skill, an important skill, quickly. God may ask, what did you do? Did you honor me 
by honing the skills and the talents I gave you. I gave you talents. What did you do with them? That's question one. Question two, did you honor the teachers, the parents, the mentors, the guides that I put in your life? They tried to help you. Did you listen as they invested in you? Did you give them a reward? Number three, did you use your abilities to provide for your family, your children, your husband, your wife, maybe extended family? Number four, not just your family, did you use my gifts to promote the public good? Did you serve yourself or did you serve society, the people around you? And number five, were the legitimate prayers of God's people answered through you? Because, you know, people go to bed at night and they pray the Lord's Prayer, give us our day, this daily bread, and bakers get up in the morning and bake the bread, and truck drivers drive the bread where it needs to go, and cashiers help us pay for the bread. Did you answer the legitimate prayers of God's people, which means there are some jobs that aren't really worth doing. Now there's immoral work, I'm not gonna list immoral jobs, but there's other jobs or positions in life that we find ourselves in, we probably should move if we can, more on that in a minute. But for example, you know, some people make um, promotional t-shirts and pens, right? And most promotional, uh, most promotional pens work until you use them twice, and then the cap explodes. And the the t-shirts might make it till you get to your car. So maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Maybe you should be doing something else. You should be doing something useful. If you're producing nothing useful, even if it's technically moral, it's worth asking the question, should I move to another position? Now the idea here is that although we should stay where we are when God called us, we can move around. If you can gain your freedom, do so, Paul says. It's also true that every job has its hard side, its tedium. Jerry Seinfeld is a comedian. I heard him talking about his craft one time. He said, I will spend one hour to take one word out of a joke, to shorten a joke by one word. I gotta tell you, that's not exciting work. That's probably tedious. And most jobs have a downside. In fact, I think just about every job has a downside. In fact, even if you're gifted at something, that probably has a downside. I mentioned that I have grandchildren, and my grandchildren are all awesome, of course, naturally. Um, But, you know, they show their awesomeness in different ways. And one of them is extraordinarily verbally precocious. And when she was 15 months old, her mom took her to the doctor, and the doctor said, so does she have 10 words by now? And my daughter looked at the doctor and said, I stopped counting at 300 a while ago. Now that means she's intellectually gifted, of course. (laughs) That means she's intellectually gifted, but here's the thing about children like that, when they turn three, they understand the world far more in their minds than their emotions can cope. They have figured out at the age of three the world's a difficult place, a dangerous place. And that means life as a parent is much harder for that child because that child is filled with fears. Their mind is outstripping their emotions. So the beauty of having a precocious child is also a burden. And that's the way life is so very often. 
In every job known to humanity, there's an aspect of taking out the garbage, a challenge. Now, this is all talking about our calling and our place in life, and I wanna just make sure we say one thing, and that is the calling God gives us in life, (coughs) pardon me, the calling God gives us in life is, yes, our work and our assignment, but in the Bible, When the Bible says calling, it actually first of all speaks of our call to Christ, our call to believe in Christ. In fact, at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And you are loved by God and called to be saints. And over in Romans he says, you've been called to be conformed to the image of his son. And Paul repeatedly says, when God calls to you, you need to answer. We see that again in our passage where it says you've been bought with a price. The Lord has called you to himself first, and then he calls you to places and roles in life. Now when he fleshes this out in 1 Corinthians, he chooses to begin with marriage. He actually begins with singleness. He says, you know, if you're single, if that's your calling, you should be content in it. You don't need to think to yourself, I've got to get married. Now he does say, stay single, stay, there's a little line that he uses, which is stay unless because. So if you're single, stay single, unless you're burning with passion because you don't wanna burn sexually and commit sins. And then a little bit later he says, let me talk to those of you Corinthians who are unhappily married to a non-Christian. You may say, well, how did that happen? Well, Paul planted the church in Corinth around the year 50 AD. And he's writing his letter about 55 AD. And Corinth was the first place Paul had a really long-lasting European uh, missional work planting churches. He was there 18 months, many, many converts, many, many people became Christians. As adults, they'd never heard of Christ before. And often, a husband and wife would convert together, and often, one would convert and the other would not. And the Corinthians said to Paul, How can we serve the Lord when our spouse does not share our faith? Maybe the best thing for us to do is to get a divorce. And Paul said, no, no. If you're married to somebody, stay married. Stay married. That's his first word always. Stay married. Unless the unbeliever is bound and determined to leave, stay unless, because God has called us to peace. That is to say, share your faith, live a beautiful life, but you never know if your spouse is going to convert or not, you can't be sure, and so stay married. Unless the unbeliever is absolutely bound to depart, you can't stop someone who leaves you and moves to Australia or the equivalent in those days. Stay unless because God has called you to peace. Stay unless because, that's his line then and now. And then he says in verse 17, only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. That's his big theme. Now this means then that we don't have, when we're in a tough spot, as our first thought, how can I get out of this? How can I find my way to something else? Because even the hard places in life have been given to us by the Lord. And we use two examples of this. The first example is, it probably sounded pretty strange when I was reading to you, circumcision and uncircumcision. What he means is something like this. Circumcision stands for Jews. Uncircumcision stands for Gentiles. 
Were you a Jew when you were called? A lot of people were unhappy to be Jews in the Roman Empire. It created certain disadvantages. I would like to look like, act like, be received as a Gentile. Other people, a few at least, who were Gentiles, wished they had been born into the covenants of God. I wish I had been Jewish and I would have known about God my whole life. Paul says, don't worry about it one way or the other. You have a life assignment. Now, I have to say that um, my name is Doriani, but I'm not Italian. Most of you who've known me know that. I'm half Jewish, and there are advantages and disadvantages. One of the disadvantages of being Jewish is that people, hearing my name Doriani, have told a number of anti-Semitic jokes in my presence. And from time to time, I say, you know, you should probably know before you tell another joke like, joke like that that I'm Jewish. And then the conversation gets very awkward. <laughs> now, we all have our ways of liking or disliking our heritage. Today, we might say, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. I wish I were from a family where everyone had some social capital. Because when I hang out with people whose you know, grandparents went to Boston College, I always feel inferior. Paul says, don't worry about it. Your life assignment is to be in that family. That's the family you're in. Don't worry about it. Or maybe everybody from your family has gone to college and you're the one who doesn't and hasn't and you try to hide it and you feel inferior. Paul says, don't worry about it. God's given you a life assignment. Stay where you are. Serve faithfully in the place that God has given you. He also speaks of slavery and I explained it briefly before and it is maybe the most amazing social teaching in the New Testament, he says, if you are a slave when you are called, don't let it bother you. Don't think to yourself, I've got to get out of this position in life. Yes, yes, it's difficult to be a slave, but you know, everybody is free in some ways and everybody is a slave in some ways. That's true, isn't it? I mean, doesn't everybody belong to somebody? Doesn't the administrative assistant belong to the manager and the manager belongs to the higher level manager? And the higher level manager belongs to the CFO and the CFO belongs to the CEO? And the CEO belongs to the board and the board belongs to the, stock, to the stockholders? Isn't that, isn't that the way it goes? Nobody's free, are they? Or let's go to a university for a minute. The students belong to the professor, right? Gotta do what the professor says. The professor is by no means a free agent, he belongs to the dean. And the dean is not a free agent, he belongs or she belongs to the provost, and the provost belongs to the president, and the president belongs to the board of trustees, and if it's a public university, everybody in the whole state gets to have their say about that particular job, right? Of course, if the students vote, then they're in charge of the whole thing because they can vote the trustees in and out. Everybody belongs to somebody. Everybody belongs to somebody. I once said to somebody who owned their own business, it must be awesome to be your own boss. He laughed in my face. <laughs> he said, what are you talking about? Every customer I have is my boss. Everyone belongs to someone. In fact, the Bible relativizes bondage, even the bondage of slavery. When Paul calls himself a slave, and he calls Moses a slave of God, and he called David a slave of God, and he called Jesus a slave. We're all slaves to something. We can all serve where we are. We can all 
find meaning where we are. Now, does that answer the question of self-actualization and my happiness and, and my use of my opportunities? Well, the answer is maybe and maybe not. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12. I want to read something to you, just three verses, and I'll dig out my reading glasses, and then I'll give you time to find the passage. Romans chapter 12, and I'm going to read uh, just three verses, verses six to eight, if you like to follow in your phones or your hand Bibles. And this is what it says. It says, everybody has a gift, and our gifts differ. He says it this way. Having gifts, Romans 12, 6, that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he says, if you've got a gift, you should just use the gift that you have. That's a sacred obligation. God's given it to you, you should use it. Here, here's the way he says it. If your gift is prophecy, then in proportion to faith, that is to say consistent with the faith. If your gift is service, in serving. If your gift is serving, serve. And if your gift is teaching, then teach. And the one who exhorts should exhort. And then it shifts a little bit and says, and the one who contributes with generosity. That's the spirit of it, not just doing it, but with generosity. The one who leads with zeal, with passion. And the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And so we have two parts to this. He says, if you're a teacher, teacher. If you're a servant, serve. If you're an exhorter, exhort. Just do it. But then he also says, at best, take joy in it. If you're a leader, don't just do it. Do it with zeal. Fulfill your jobs with cheerfulness. There can be a blessing. Abraham Maslow was not all wrong when he said we should seek some level of good cheer and of fulfillment. We should take pleasure in our work. I'm a professor now and have been most of my life. And I will never forget one of my professors who kind of thought maybe I would be a professor someday telling me this. He said, Dan, I teach for free. They pay me to grade papers. <laughs> I would say it this way. I teach for free. They pay me to grade bad papers <laughs> because good papers are so enjoyable to read, I have to say. Every job has this downside, every side of work is not equally pleasing to us. And our work is not exactly a domain freely chosen. We like to emphasize choice in America and fulfillment. And it's not all wrong. It's not all wrong. But there's also a sense of assignment to a task that serves in this world. Again, God may ask us questions about the use of our gifts, the use of our talents, the use of the opportunities God gave us. That puts us in a place in life. It's all too common for people today to, um, to look to find their meaning in their work, to find their significance there. Now there's workaholism on one side. On the other side today, there's also another trend, and that is to get a job where you have skills that are just rare enough that you need to be paid pretty well, even though you only work 38 hours a week and you can spend all the time you want kayaking and canoeing on weekends. And the idea then is we're serving ourselves, and, and the teaching here is follow your heart, follow your passion, uh, give priority to your self-appraisal, what do you want to do, find out who you are and do it, and I think it's better to think of questions like this or to think this way, God gave you certain gifts 
And when he gave them to you, he gave them to humanity as well. And he gave you the spirit to help you discern your gifts fallibly, yourself and the people around you. We can't always tell what we're good at. And God gave you opportunities to develop your gifts. Are you doing that? And God gives you wisdom to use your gifts to glorify him and love the people around you and society as a whole. And so if you wanna know what your calling in life is or what your place in life is, you should ask questions like, do I have a desire that fulfills a human need? Do I have a skill set, some abilities that enable me to meet that need? And do my skills remedy a real deficit? And as we think about that as well, we should ask not only questions like, who can I serve, but we should ask questions like, where can I serve? Because God's life assignment might be that you should stay right here in St. Louis, or stay in a, a position where you're maybe caring for a sick relative. You'd like to be free of it, but that's your place in life. In other words, our propensities to ask questions like, what gift do I have that I can use to make myself happy and fulfilled? And the Lord also wants, to ask, wants us to ask, what burden will I serve, will I share? What task will I perform for the good of humanity? And furthermore, if we're talking about getting rid of selfish individualism, please know that most of us serve best on teams. I'm gonna ask you a question. Ever heard the name Michael Phelps? Raise your hand if you heard of Michael Phelps. Okay, that's good. Anybody ever hear the name Jason Lezak? Okay, we got two people. Perfect. Three people have heard of Jason Lezak. So Michael Phelps is famous, don't hold me to it, for, for winning something like 22 Olympic medals, 14 golds in three or four Olympic series. It's written down in my notes somewhere, I don't know. But he did really, he was awesome. And he is the one and only person in the history of humanity to win eight gold medals at one Olympic set of games, and it was 2008. If you're alive and paid any attention to the Olympics at the time, you knew that it was pretty much a given that he would win six, probably seven, maybe eight. Probably not eight, because number eight was the four by 100 relay, and America's swimming team in the four by 100 was the second best in the world, loud and clear, there's no doubt the French team is faster than the American team. The times tell the truth. It's just a matter of who swims faster. The French were faster, that's all there is to it. And furthermore, Phelps had the four by 100 freestyle, was his worst event. So he, wasn't, he didn't lead, he wasn't the anchor, which is why if you know the story, you know the picture of him screaming for a teammate hoping he would finish. If you know, if you have a picture of Phelps in your mind, that might be the picture you have. He wasn't in the water because he wasn't the fastest swimmer in that event. Jason Lezak was, at least for the Americans. But when he got in the pool for the fourth and final leg, he was six-tenths of a second behind the French team, which is actually pretty much in swimming. And he was also up against the world record holder, so there was no chance whatsoever. In fact, after 50 meters were over, he was farther behind. A full second, a full body length. In an interview afterward, he said, he told himself this at the turn, 50 meters to go, you're at the Olympics, you can't give up. I love that because apparently, even at the Olympics, in the middle of their final race, people think about quitting. But he said, no, I think I won't quit. I think I'll keep swimming. <laughs> and so he kept swimming and he relaxed and he started to gain a little bit on Bernard Lane, the world record holder. And Bernard Lane felt him coming and got a little bit tight. 
and started to look at him and drifted over toward his lane, which helped him breeze a tiny bit, which actually happens in the water, which made Lezek get even closer. And if you remember the scene, it looked like they touched the, you know, the pad simultaneously, but Lezak had touched one one-hundredth of a second earlier. So Phelps won eight gold medals, and Jason Lezak swam the fastest 100 meters of all time, although he never won on his own. On his own, the best he ever did was a bronze. He could only swim his best when he was swimming with a team then he could relax. Friends, I think that's the way most of us are. You know, we talk about self-actualization and my fulfillment and my calling and my purpose in life, but the truth matters, we find our purpose in life with the people around us. And so yes, it's in our work, of course it's in our work, but it's also in our relationships. Let me say it this way, if you are, I'll say, a woman of a certain age, If you're a woman of a certain age, maybe you're freshly retired, maybe you're still working somewhat, but if you're a woman of a certain age, you might also have other callings like grandmother and mother and neighbor and disciple and friend. Those are life assignments too. And if you're in college or 23 years old and fresh out, you don't quite know what you're doing with your life, your calling may also be, besides your work, roommate and disciple, and friend, and key player on a volleyball team that isn't really that important, but we need you, so please show up for the match. We have a lot of callings, and the question, what do you want to do, what does my heart desire, is a valid question, but it's by no means the first question. The first question is, has God called you to himself? Has Jesus called you to himself? And if he has called you to himself, and I certainly hope he has, And if you think you're hearing a voice, then do business with that today. But if he has called you to himself, he also has more than just salvation for you. He has a a life assignment, a place in which you can love your neighbors yourself, do good, common good for the people around you, be part of the fabric of life that God is building in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for calling us to yourself and for summoning us not only to believe one time at the beginning, but to believe that you have a purpose and a plan for us, and a life assignment for us, a place where we can reflect your love back in this world to our neighbors and our friends, the people who depend on us. Liberate us, Lord, from foolish quests for selfish happiness or fulfillment. Enable us to walk like men and women who have been bought with a price and belong to a Savior who bears burdens and does so gladly. May we do the same, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.